Well, me and my friends love Larry and Mo. We love Curly's brother Shemp and his fat clone Joe. It's such a delight to boogie and hustle, dancing all night doing the Curly Shuffle. Hey Mo, hey Mo, hey Mo, hey Mo. Well, uh, yuck, yuck, yuck. On January 18, 1952, Jerome Horwitz, who entertained millions under the stage name Curly Howard, died at the far too young age of 48. A few days later, in a thousand miles away, Peter Quinn was born. Because of this quirk of timing, Quinn always felt a cosmic connection to the comedian, convinced that he was Curly's reincarnated spirit. In an interview with VH1, he admitted as much, saying, Curly is alive and living in my body. If that's true, he gave his literal soulmate one last triumph. In 1983, Quinn's Western swing group, Jumpin' the Saddle Band, recorded the Curly Shuffle, a dance record where the only step seemed to be do a bad Three Stooges impression. The Curly Shuffle quickly became a regional hit and took off nationwide in that strange way naughty records tend to do. By 1984, it rose all the way to number 15 on the charts. While the trio often incorporated music into the vaudeville routine, the Curly Shuffle is the closest thing the Three Stooges have to a hit record. A year later, Duran Duran took a far different decades-long franchise to new chart heights. Like Jumpin' the Saddle Band before them, Duran Duran fell apart right after their biggest hit. It was not the first time the man behind that song in an iconic career. He had already murdered the Three Stooges creator. In the early hours of December 21st, 1937, Ted Healy's often rosy face was spotted on LA's Sunset Strip. The famed actor and vaudevillian developed the Three Stooges' individual personas. The brash and bossy Mo Howard, the wacky knucklehead Curly Howard, and Larry Fine, who straddled the middle of those two. He managed the troupe's first 15 years. By 1934, between contract disputes and missing paychecks, Healy and the Stooges parted ways. After losing his greatest success, Healy became a belligerent drunk. While tragic, it was not a complete surprise when the 41 washed up comedian was found dead in the parking lot of Hollywood's Trocadero nightclub. Officially, Healy died of kidney inflammation from years of chronic alcohol abuse. Those closest to him disagreed. In his last moments of consciousness, Healy called Shimp Howard, Moe and Curly's brother, claiming actor Wallace Beery, Mobster Peter DeCicio and studio heavyweight Albert Broccoli attacked him. Bruises and scars spotted during Healy's autopsy support that narrative. In inconsistent retellings, Broccoli has admitted as much, confirming that the three men did attack him that night but deny any role in his death. Looks like Broccoli is not always good for your health. According to Stooge historian Jeff Forster, it is likely that Healy succumbed to his injuries, but MGM suppressed the truth. The studio could not afford for their lucrative star Wallace Berry to be associated with a deadly assault, especially considering his image was tied to an Oscar-winning portrayal of a drunken boxer in the movie The Champ. At the behest of MGM, the police ran a cover story and refused to investigate any further. Officially, all allegations of foul play remain purely speculative. In the ensuing years, Albert Broccoli graduated from studio relief to legitimate producer. 
1961, MGM handed him a series of books to adapt into a franchise. He made the most of it. Outside of Arthur Ian Fleming, no man is more responsible for James Bond as we know it than Albert Broccoli. Until his death in 1996, his personal vision guided every film in the franchise. That death almost came a lot sooner. In 1966, while scouting production locations in Japan, Broccoli booked a ticket on BOAC Flight 911. He canceled his flight that morning to check out a ninja demonstration instead. It's a good thing he did. The plane crashed and killed everyone on board. By evading justice for his crimes and avoiding certain death, he lived. Twice. Because he did, James Bond lived 20 more times. Musically, James Bond is the most successful film franchise of all time. As of this recording, there have been 25 Bond movies with standalone themes. So far, 15 of those have made the Hot 100. Not all of them have been huge hits. Eight of them charted worse than the Curly Shuffle. So, take that, Broccoli. The remaining seven hit the top ten. They were Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Paul McCartney's Live and Let Die. Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me. Nobody does it better. Though sometimes I wish someone could. Sheena Easton's For Your Eyes Only. Duran Duran's A View to a Kill. Meeting you with a view to a kill. Madonna's Die Another Day. And Adele's Skyfall. Strangely enough, three years before she sang for the actual Bond, Madonna also had the top 20 with Beautiful Stranger off the soundtrack for that Bond spoof, Austin Powers. Beautiful Stranger. Out of all those songs, only A View to a Kill went to the top. That success was the last thing Duran Duran needed. By 1985, Duran Duran were essentially two different factions. John and Andy Taylor had formed Power Station. Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes, and Roger Taylor had created Arcadia. As Bond superfans, the Fractured Band came together over their love of 007. Along with Albert Broccoli and composer John Barry, turned out what turned out to be their last number one hit. Later that year, they stumbled through the song during their set at Live Aid. The pitiful performance was the last time the original lineup ever sang together. Between infighting, side projects, and drying up hits, Duran Duran were basically over. Like with Ted Healy before them, Albert Broccoli really did have a license to kill. Hi, and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is Youngman, Nate Youngman. 
This week we are talking spies. The subjects of our main stories are more like Q than Bond. We are going to discuss two inventive musicians whose wartime gadgets unintentionally change the world. So let's get started with our Act 1, Bad Vibrations. The Beach Boys don't quite know how to pick collaborators. Some partnerships have been tacky, like with their last number one hit Kokomo, a bloated sellout one-off soundtrack single from Cocktail, Tom Cruise's lowest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Some partnerships have been absurd, like, as we covered earlier, how the profits of Brian Wilson's first number one end up financing a madcap plot to kidnap Frank Sinatra Jr. Some partnerships have been disturbing, like how Dennis Wilson befriended and recorded a song written by murderous cult leader Charles Manson and Gerald Ford's attempted assassin, Squeaky Fromm. After a few rewrites, Manson's Cease to Exist was retitled Never Learn Not to Love and wound up on the Beach Boys' 1969 album, 2020. In terms of sheer embarrassment, it's hard to beat Summer of Love. Hey now. Well, it's a love thing. In 1990, Fox cashed in The Simpsons' unprecedented popularity with a novelty goof, Do the Bartman. Written by and featuring background vocals by Michael Jackson, the song is mostly Bart rattling off a list of mild misdeeds, like putting mothballs in his mom's beef stew. The song topped several charts around the world. The ever-tasteful Mike Love tried to grab up some of that money. The 50-year-old musician recorded Summer of Love as a follow-up where he and fourth grader Bart Simpson rapped skeevy lines like Doing it to others is the but doing it with you would be so very cool. Weird how the Michael Jackson song comes off as a less creepy version. Fox rejected the song, but NBC let them shoot a music video for it with the cast of Baywatch. So if you want to pick the worst Beach Boys collaborator, David Hasselhoff is a good pick. While not as ridiculous as those other attempts, one other Beach Boy partnership was nearly as outrageous. For one week, at the height of the Cold War, they credited the most popular song in America to a wanted Soviet spy. I'm picking up A technological and musical wonder, Good Vibrations set a new standard for what a pop song could be. A triumph of one man's single-minded, possibly self-destructive obsession, Brian Wilson layered sound upon sound into a dizzying emotional head rush. One of the odder instruments used to create that effect was the electrotheremin. Built upon the work of inventor Leon Theremin, the electro-theremin evoked an instrument that had been not heard from for almost 40 years. In the early 1920s, Soviet radio engineer Leon Theremin shocked audiences around the world with what appeared to be magic. By waving his hands around a contraption resembling a radio with two antennas, he pulled music out of thin air. The New York Times described the emitting noise as a cello lost in a dense fog and crying because it does not know how to get home. Listen for yourself.
born in 1896 in St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida. Theremin was a precocious and inquisitive child. By 15, he had constructed his own astronomical observatory. By 22, he graduated St. Petersburg University with a focus on physics and the cello. In some ways, his most famous invention was a ghostly combination of those two passions. One day, while working on an experiment measuring the densities of different gases, he noticed that the gases changed pitch once approached by an object with mass. Amazed, he tried to recreate the phenomena with electricity. With a little tinkering, he created the world's first electronic instrument. A theremin is made of two antennas, one vertical, one horizontal, connected by radio frequency oscillators tuned to the same frequency. When the hand moves towards the antenna, the oscillator's frequency changes. Those two frequencies are superimposed into a mixing circuit, and the resulting sound is the difference between those two. I explained all that, and I had not one idea what I'm talking you about. Got it, you got it. Because there's no keyboard or fret for reference, the theremin is a difficult instrument to master. A player must have spatial perception, perfect pitch, and a firm hand. Luckily, theremin had such a talent. Theremin gave Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin a private demonstration. He so respected Lenin that he also tried to resurrect him from the dead. Theremin was convinced that, at cold enough temperatures, he could freeze organisms in a state of permanent stasis. His plan was to place the dear leader in a cryogenic chamber so that he could someday resurrect him from the grave. His theory was that eventually science would advance so much that we would all be immortal. However, his plan backfired almost immediately when a different scientist pulled Lenin's brain out of his head. So, a little less than eternity there. But during his lifetime, Lenin was so impressed by Theremin's ingenuity that he bankrolled Theremin to go on a world tour in a display of Soviet supremacy. Beginning in December 1927, Theremin toured the U.S. extensively. He and his instrument quickly became celebrities among the city's artistic elite. He rubbed elbows with Charlie Chaplin, Dwight Eisenhower, John Rockefeller, and George Gershwin. Albert Einstein even crashed at his apartment for a while. Seems Albert could find his own place. Theremin even fell in love. He married Lavina Williams, a dancer for the American Negro Ballet. After his U.S. concerts became tabloid sensations, electronics company RCA acquired the patent for the theremin with the plan of mass-producing it for audiences worldwide. But when customers realized how hard it actually was to play, sales plummeted. Theremin was left with no way to make money off his idea. To recoup his losses, he experimented with new boundary-pushing inventions. His 1931 invention, the Rhythmicon, was one of the world's first drum machines. His terpsitone was practically a full-body theremin. The performer's expressive movements became a song itself. He was also one of the many scientists who worked on parallel experiments with early televisions. His prototype successfully displayed a grainy, wobbly image. While the pioneering stepped forward, the cash-strapped Soviet Union did not have the funds to invest in widespread adoption of the set. In 1938, Theremin left the U.S. by being smuggled aboard a Soviet ship under an assumed identity. The reason for this abrupt departure remains a mystery. To his friends and colleagues in New York, he seemingly vanished with no warning. His wife never saw him again. At that time, it was speculated that he was kidnapped. Later reports suggested he was fleeing creditors in the U.S. The most popular theory is that he was recalled for a suspected role in the murder of the high-ranking Soviet official Sergei Kirov. According to prosecutors, conspirators blew up Kirov with a radio-controlled bomb in an observatory in St. Petersburg. Theremin was the alleged trigger man who detonated the bomb from his studio in New York. This is an interesting argument. It holds that the plot relied on Theremin sending a signal across the Atlantic while radio was still in its infancy. And second, Kirov was actually shot dead by the husband of one of his employees. Most historians now agree that Theremin was framed for a crime that he did not commit. 
he was sentenced to hard labor in the country's gulags. A year into his sentence, the communist regime realized that theremin could be used for a lot more than breaking up rocks. He was conscripted into Sharaska Laboratories, a secret collective of scientists and engineers in charge of creating new spyware. His first breakthrough was a system code called Buran. It worked by pointing an infrared beam at a window. The beam detected the near imperceivable vibration sound waves made by bouncing off glass. The vibrations are then reconverted to sound. Theremin's device allowed Soviets to eavesdrop on conversations on the U.S., French, and British embassies, and even Stalin himself. However, his most ingenious spyware was a device simply known as the Thing. It was a listening device of such simplicity that it remained undetected for seven years. In 1945, a group of schoolchildren presented to the U.S. ambassador to Russia a carved wooden great seal of the United States with the thing hidden inside. The bug was a simple cavity resonator and circuit attached to an antenna that would only pick up signals when an electromagnetic signal of the correct frequency was aimed at it. It hung proudly in the ambassador's office until 1952, transmitting sensitive diplomatic information to the Russians for all that time. In 1951, a British radio accidentally tuned in and opened Soviet Air Force radio channel, playing American conversations. They alerted the embassy and the thing was uncovered. In the early 1960s, Theremin was officially cleared of any charges related to Kirov's fascination. He spent the rest of his life working at the Moscow State Tchaikovsky Conservatory, teaching the electronic musical instruments that he assumed were mostly forgotten about. It was only when he returned to the U.S. in 1991 that he learned just how much his instrument had affected popular culture. After his sudden disappearance, the theremin fad was mostly dismissed as a curiosity. If it was ever heard, it was almost exclusively to back science fiction and horror flicks. Famed film composer Bernard Herrmann secured that cultural connection with his eerie score for the 1951 classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The theremin became such a genre staple that its woozy, haunting tone is now the go-to sound effect you hear when you picture a UFO landing. After good vibrations showed the instrument's pop potential, later rock stars built songs around the instrument's curious whine. Everyone from the Pixies to Pink Floyd to Led Zeppelin's to the Rolling Stones to Portishead to Erica Badu to the Decemberists to the Flaming Lips have paid tribute to theremin. Robert Moog, an American inventor who built his own theremin at age 14, was heavily inspired by theremin. He called theremin the biggest, fattest, most important musical cornerstone of the whole electronic music movement. Inspired by his hero, Moog invented the modern synthesizer in 1964, spilling theremin's futuristic sounds into the classic synth tone of 70s prog to 90s G-funk to UK house. Today, theremin remains best known for the instrument that bears his name, but that is just one facet of his prodigious output. If anything, focusing on his musical legacy minimizes the real way he changed the world. Weirdly, the same year Bernard Herrmann used theremin's instrument to soundtrack Flying Saucers Evading Washington, D.C., theremin's role in an actual plot against the American government was exposed. The thing was far ahead of anything the CIA had, and they spent years trying to replicate it. That is because the thing pioneered a whole new system of technology called Modern Radio Frequency Identification, or RFID. The passive transmitters theremin pioneered power all sorts of things you use every day, like gift cards or credit cards. Ironically enough, a tool of Soviet spyware ended up unleashing a new age of capitalistic excess. We saw a lot of that money fly around just yesterday. The day before we recorded this episode, Charleston hosted the High Water Festival. WHM Radio was one of the event sponsors. To get entrance into that venue, 
you had to scan a bracelet. That bracelet, too, ran on a variation of RFID. More than a century after his music career began, Theremin is still putting on quite a concert. You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, now we're going to move to my act, Act 2, Bombshell. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from Earth we go. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a rare movie that changed everything. As the first full-length animated film, Snow White proved the commercial and artistic potential for a new art form. As the launch of the Disney Empire, Snow White built the powerhouse company that now basically runs Hollywood. As the legacy of Hedy Lamarr is just a footnote. Built by MGM head Louis B. Mayer as the most beautiful woman in the world. 1930s actress Hedy Lamarr was one of the most glamorous starlets of her age. Her radiant beauty was a model for, for both Catwoman's seductive snarl and Snow White's wholesome innocence. More than any movie she actually starred in, these cartoon tributes are the Lamarr films we still live with. Uh, let's not forget Hedy Lamarr in Blazing Saddles. Sure, if we're being generous. But some phrases first sung by her animated lips continue to echo to this day. Snow White's schlocky melody, Someday My Prince Will Come, has now become a jazz standard, with legends as varied as Dave Brubeck, Miles Davis, Ben Sindron, Oscar Peterson, Herbie Hancock, and Chick Corea, all recording versions. Uh, the first band to record a jazz arrangement of the song was the Ghetto Singers, a band of Czech Holocaust victims who did not all live to see their work endure. 63 years after Snow White instructed her woodland friends to whistle while you work, just whistle while you work. The Yingang twins asked strippers to whistle while you twerk. Whistle while you twerk. Built around the familiar melody, the duo's debut single shot to number one on the rap charts and kicked off the Yingang twins' run as hitmakers, ultimately culminating in Crunk's definitive single, Get Low. Though spelled T W U R K. The song coined a new style of rump shaking. The song so popularized the trend that 13 years later, we end up with the 2013 VMA twerktastrophe. When Miley Cyrus grinded on Robin Thicke, her We Can't Stop sat at number two, only blocked by the man her butt was currently pressed against. A few months later, Miley finally did reach number one, again with the help of Hedy Lamar. Hedwig Kleiser was born in Vienna, Austria, in 1914. As an only child of wealthy parents, she had everything she wanted while growing up. She took ballet, played piano, learned multiple languages, and played several sports. At 16, she dropped out of school to pursue acting under the new stage name, Hedy. Lamar's breakout role was a controversial film, Ecstasy. In the 1933 movie, Lamar plays a sexually frustrated young bride of a much older man. Bored of her marriage, she chases after a new suitor. The new couple consummate the love in a scene that film historians consider the first on-screen female orgasm. 
For some reason, the director thought she would give a more genuine reaction if he kept poking her butt with needles. No matter if that technique worked or not, the film went on to be as controversial as you expect. Though banned across the USA and Europe, the salacious film turned Lamar into a sex symbol. Many men tried to win the hand of the newly dubbed ecstasy girl. The one who eventually did was not the best choice. The first man she married was Fritz Mandel, a wealthy arms dealer with ties to the Nazi party. Deeply jealous and possessive, Mandel forced her to quit acting, and even tried to destroy all prints of her only big role. A prisoner of the marriage, Hetty was not allowed to leave the house without him. Lamar craved a life beyond her home, especially because it kept getting filled with people like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. She sat on in private meetings while her husband discussed military technology and tactics with the Nazi high command. Fearful of both her husband and rising tide of fascism, in 1937 she left Europe for the United States. Her escape plan was genius in its simplicity. First, she hired a maid that looked like her. After a few weeks, she put a sleeping pill in the maid's tea, switched out their outfits, and left in disguise. On the run to England, she subsequently made the acquaintance of MGM studio boss Louis B. Mayer. Mayer offered her a contract on the spot on the condition she changed her name from Chrysler to Lamar. With that, a star was born. Starting with 1938's Algiers, Lamar helmed a series of hit pictures alongside household names like Judy Garland and Clark Gable. Her biggest and favorite film, Cecil B. DeMille's adaptation of Samson Delilah, was the third highest grossing film ever made at the time of its release. But during this time, she was proud of her work away from the camera. When she was not filming, Lamar spent most of her time tinkering on inventions. Her creativity was all over the place. She improved traffic lights to give drivers more notice when it was about to switch from red to green, a chair that revolved in and out of the shower for the crippled and affirmed, a fluorescent dog collar to take dogs on nighttime walks, and my favorite, a tablet that dissolved in water to make any drink instantly carbonated. Noted pilot and businessman Howard Hughes recruited her to improve his fleet of aircraft. Drawing upon the natural curvature of fish fins, Lamar designed aerodynamic airplane wings that broke then speed records. Her inventive mind was put to its greatest use as the United States geared up for World War II. Thanks to her marriage to Mandel, Lamar had particular keen insight into the Axis's weaponry. Torpedoes used a notoriously difficult wireless control mechanism. Guided by radio frequencies, those signals could be easily detected and jammed by the enemy. If they took control of the frequency, they could redirect the torpedo potentially back to where it came from. She came up with an ingenious idea. Instead of having the radio guidance transmitter and torpedoes receiver fixed on one frequency, it could hop to different frequencies in a random pre-established pattern, making it impossible to locate and block a message before it moved to another frequency. She called this technique frequency hopping. Hetty knew the idea had potential, but she could not figure out how to actually build the device. She soon stumbled into a partnership with a simile-centric entertainer, avant-garde composer George Antill. George Antill is best remembered for his biggest flop the 1926 premiere of his ballet, Mechanique. It probably would not have sounded that good even if the show went as planned. The 11th Symphony required a fleet of pianos, sirens, hammers, saws, electric bells, and two oversized airplane propellers. 
The centerpiece of the score was a suite of 16 pianos playing four different atonal passages as a fleet of automaton dancers take the stage. Even if they were all triggered simultaneously, there was no easy way to synchronize multiple player pianos to play in unison. Antil discovered this flaw pretty quickly. As the dueling melodies diverged into a cacophonous blur, the crowd grew restless. An all-star lineup of early 20th century artists like James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, and Man Ray shouted expletives from the stands. When Antil brought out a giant airplane propellers, concert goers pretended to roll in the aisles as if they were being blown away. By the end, a small riot broke out that had to be squashed by the police. Antil figured it was time to switch jobs. Antil settled for a more successful, though less scandalous career composing scores for Hollywood productions. When not making music, Antil had the unorthodox side hustle of writing a romance advice column for Esquire magazine and practicing endocrinology. One of his clients was Hetty Lamar. She approached him to see if he could use his expertise up her breast size. The two got to talking about non-boob science, and George Antil immediately saw the genius of Hetty's frequency-hopping idea. But it still presented one critical challenge. The receiving mechanism had to shift frequencies in concert with the sending device. It was, in a sense, a synchronization problem. This is where Antil's experience with the ballet mechanique supplied the missing element to complete Lamar's invention. He thought back to those 16 pianos and the dream of programming them all in perfect time. He proposed a control system whereby the instructions for frequencies were encoded in two perforated ribbons. As a nod to the musical roots of the idea, Antil proposed that the system include 88 distinct frequency hops, one for each key on a piano. The two perfected their invention and eventually acquired a patent before approaching the U.S. Navy. The Navy initially refused the program. Incredulously, officials balked at the system, saying, What do you want to do, put a player piano in a torpedo? The idea was just too ahead of its time and sat shell for almost two decades. After the war, Lamar returned to film. She had continuous work for the next two decades, even breaking ground as one of the first actresses to produce her own films. In 1960, her years of acting were recognized with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It was a fitting tribute to her career. The rest of the 60s were a rough decade for Lamar. The studio kept her on a regular diet of uppers and downers, including distributions by the notorious Dr. Feelgood, a studio hatchet man whose vitamin shots were actually filled with methamphetamine. Her behavior grew increasingly erratic. In 1966, she lost her last film role, Picture Mommy Dead, due to a shoplifting scandal. Right as her acting career faded, people finally started to realize Frequency Hopping's true potential. By 1962, Lamar and Hill's technology had become standard in all of the Navy's missile-guided torpedoes. An updated version even played a role in saving the world from nuclear annihilation during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Living on only $300 a week, Lamar demanded some compensation for her work. The Navy refused, claiming that the patent had conveniently expired. Years later, it would come out that that was a lie. Current estimates value her invention around $30 billion. Hetty never received any of it and spent her final days in a modest apartment in Miami. She died in January 2000, right before her invention rewired the world. Today, frequency hopping is the essential engine of all speed spectrum technology. Numerous wireless systems, including cell phone networks, GPS, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi, all rely on her and Antil's breakthrough. If a signal fails or is obstructed, the connection doesn't stop, it just hops to another frequency. Now dubbed the mother of Wi-Fi, Lamar was posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. 
You can't help but wonder what she might have accomplished had people actually taken her seriously. Someday, her praise will come. Obviously, the cultural legacy of her work is immense, particularly Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. It's hard to think of a way GPS has impacted music other than maybe providing an answer to, do you know the way to San Jose? As music became increasingly digital in the new millennium, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi allowed listeners to take the music anywhere or share the latest viral trends. Musical clips could spread near instantaneously and power real-life sales. This relationship benefited everyone, from a nobody chubby kid who filmed himself lip-syncing a Madovian song he mistakenly called Numa Numa, that wound up inspiring a number one hit for Rihanna and T.I. Go so to a struggling indie rock band, OK Go, that became one hit wonders after people watched them pull off a highly coordinated synchronized treadmill routine. To establish hitmaker Miley Cyrus, who stripped her Disney brand and everything else when she straddled a wrecking ball in the nude for the first number one hit. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. To eventually Little Nas X, whose bedroom goofs no longer needed the approval of major stars to reach number one, a position he stayed at for a record 19 weeks. In the streaming age, Spotify and TikTok will continue to shape American taste for years to come. Since 2013, Billboard has factored in streams and YouTube views into the formula. The first artist to profit off that change was the relatively anonymous DJ Bauer. His song Harlem Shake was the backing track for a viral series of videos that did not have any steps other than unleashing an amateur stance mob to move around as a beat drop. So, let's throw one in Hetty's honor. Everyone, do the Lamar shake. Alright, Nate, uh, interesting story. I, I, I don't think I ever saw a movie with Hetty Lamar in it. Do you have anything to close this out with? Why, yes, I do, Dad. I'm going to make this one relatively short this week. So, as we discussed earlier, Duran Duran are the only act to take a James Bond song to number one. It makes sense that it was also a bunch of British pretty boys that took a Bond theme all the way. Both groups built their brands around the sex appeal. A key part of Bond's allure is Monty Norman's effortlessly cool instrumental theme. Duran Duran even worked in some of that signature tune into A View to a Kill. But Bond would not have come across quite as suave as sophisticated if the theme kept its original lyrics. Bond's theme was adapted from a melody Monty Norman originally wrote called Bad Sign, Good Sign. Initially intended to be part of a musical adaptation of V.S. Naipoul's novel A House for Mr. Biswas, Bad Sign, Good Sign describes the main character's nasal problems. Bound by the plot, the original lyrics were, I was born with this unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. 
Pundits all agree, I am the reason why my father fell into the village pond and drowned. Shockingly, the play about fatal burgers failed to catch on. Norman held on to the tune for later use, which goes to show that a melody truly can live twice. Alright, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. I was born with this unlucky sneeze And what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round Pundits all agree that I'm the reason why my father fell Into the village pond and drowned